Thank you, Mike. Good morning. No more, no less. Just our text this morning. That's great. Uh, we'll, we, as, uh, as Mike said, we'll be in Romans 1, 18 through uh, 23 this morning. So as you are uh, turning there in your Bibles or opening an app on your phone or iPad or whatever it is, uh, I want to kind of take us in a little bit of a time machine. And, uh, and we're going to go back in time, if you will. So buckle up your seatbelts for a little DeLorean. And we're going to go back to uh, the year 2005, all right, 2005. Uh, what's interesting about this year, uh, a couple of things. Uh, it's actually when I met uh, Mike McCullough, who was actually accompanying Tim uh, in worship today. He and I were, uh, were just starting out in, uh, in seminary together, and uh, so it's encouraging to see the Lord uh, having brought him and his family to come and worship with us here at Parkway. Uh, it's also notable for uh, another thing, which is uh, February uh, 6th. 2005, uh, the Patriots were trying to win their third Super Bowl in four years, and they were playing, anybody know? Actually, the Philadelphia Eagles. They were playing the Philadelphia Eagles, who is who they're playing next week as well in the Super Bowl, and they will be going for their third victory in, uh, in four years. So there's some uh, symmetry there, some uh, parallelism. This was my first uh, semester uh, in, uh, in seminary, and for my first year in seminary, I lived on campus. I only lived on campus uh, in a dorm there for one year uh, for a number of reasons. Um, one, because the furnace would kick on in the middle of the summer, and that was terribly uncomfortable living in, uh, in Dallas. And so I'd wake up, and it would be uh, much cooler outside uh, my room than it was inside my room. Another reason is because there were no showers on my floor. And so when I wanted to go to the shower, I'd have to go down the stairwell and uh, the dorm uh, was not only a dorm, it also had academic offices, so I was always afraid that someone was going to like, be on the stairwell going for Hebrew tutoring or something like that, and there I am, carrying my little shower caddy. And, uh, and so anyway, for a number of reasons, I only lived there for uh, one year, but uh, in February, uh, I was living there uh, on campus uh, in, uh, in this dorm, and uh, there was a common living area downstairs, and so surrounded by academic offices. Uh, but there was this uh, TV, and there were some couches and tables, and, uh, and so a number of us went to watch uh, the Super Bowl, and uh, so none of us really had a vested interest in who won the game, but wanted to be men, and so we, uh, we wanted to watch the game together. So we were sitting there watching the game, and uh, around the middle of the first quarter, some other guys came down, and we thought, oh, okay, you know, they're just kind of making their way a little bit late. So I kind of get up to make room for them and, uh, and move over, and I said, hey, are you guys going to watch the game with us? And they said, which game? And, uh, and I said, the Super Bowl. I said, no, 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 we're, we're here to, to play Settlers of Catan. And, uh, and so the entire Super Bowl, there is a kind of a tale of two games going on, one in front of me, one behind me. That was the first time I ever turned my back on Settlers of Catan, and I've done it multiple times since. That's thus began my making fun of people who play Settlers of uh, Catan. And uh, so if you're not familiar with uh, Settlers of Catan, uh, if you play Settlers of Catan and you're offended, sorry, but you should be offended, all right? Uh, Settlers of Catan is uh, it's a game, uh, if you can call it that, whereby the goal is to trade ore and grain and sheep and dignity and these kinds of things. And, uh, and, and, uh, and so to give you an idea... Carl and Tim both play it, so that kind of tells you a little bit of something uh, about the game. 
and so the game is kind of centered around the idea that you kind of trade your way to glory and victory. I imagine once you win, people put a robe on you and a crown or something. But that's the, the essence of the game is kind of this, this kind of desire to trade your way up to uh, victory. And so as I was thinking about this, just with the relationship between uh, what's going on now uh, in regards to the Super Bowl and what was going on then, I started thinking about what are some of the worst trades I've ever made in, uh, in my life. Now, some of you know this about me, some of you don't, but I'm a very risk-averse person, so I didn't really have any funny an- anecdotes whatsoever. Like, I've never traded uh, a baseball card that was later worth thousands. I've never, like, traded, uh, you know, uh, my life savings for Beanie Babies or anything like that. And, uh, and so in, uh, in the absence of any sort of funny personal anecdote, uh, I went to Google, and, uh, and I began to kind of research what are some of the worst trades. And so uh, some of the sports things came up when uh, the Vikings traded with the, uh, the Cowboys, and the Cowboys kind of ended up getting three Super Bowls out of that. Uh, or Babe Ruth, the, the Red Sox traded them away for, like, the rights to produce a Broadway musical. And uh, so there were a number of different things. But my favorite story... Uh, was a, uh, a story about this practice called a life estate. And uh, I, didn't, I wasn't familiar with this, uh, but this is a practice in, uh, in some countries uh, that involves, uh, again, what's called a life estate, whereby someone who owns property uh, will basically uh, agree to someone else and allow them the right to inherit that property upon their death. And so the other person has to then pay a certain fee, a monthly fee or a yearly fee, whatever it might be. But whenever this person dies, typically someone who doesn't have any sort of heirs, uh, then this other person who has been making payments uh, will uh, inherit uh, the property from them. It becomes legally theirs, no matter how much or how little they've paid at that uh, point in time that the person passes away. And so this is a story that takes place in uh, in France, uh, and it involves a guy named... uh, uh, Andre Francois Raffray. I have no idea how to pronounce it because it's French. Uh, but um, Andre Francois Raffray was uh, 47 years old, and he knew this woman whose name was Jean or John Calment, and she was 90 years old. And so he thought, I've kind of hit the mother load here. And, uh, and so he enters into a life estate whereby he pays her a sum of around $500 a month. And, uh, and so she's 90 years old, and so he's thinking, you know, two years, three years, four years, five years maybe uh, that he's going to make this, but he's thinking, I'm definitely going to come out getting her uh, property, her residence for a steal, right? 30 years later, Andre Francois Raffray passes away, and uh, Jean Calment is still alive. Now, one of the interesting provisions of these life estates is it doesn't end with the death of this one party, it only ends in the death of the person who actually owns the property. So once he passes away, his wife then has to take up payments. They end up paying over two times what this piece of property is worth uh, whenever she finally passes away at 122 and a half years. She's actually uh, in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest living person uh, in regards to modern certification the longest living person in regards to modern certification. And when she was asked uh, about this arrangement that she had made with Mr. Raffray on his death, and when she learned of his death, she says, in life, sometimes people make bad deals. And nowhere is that more evident than our text this morning. 
This is the worst deal that has ever taken place, and it has taken place in the hearts of every one of us in this room and every person who has ever lived, Christ excluded. So let's pray, and then we will dive into uh, our text. First, I want to just ask you to pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you a heart to love His Word, a mind that is attentive, that you would be able to block out any distractions. That you pray the same thing for those around you, whether you know them or not, your husband or wife or mother or father or children or friends or strangers, that the Lord would help them incline their hearts, open their eyes that they might behold wonderful things in the Word this morning. And then lastly, would you pray for me that the Lord would help me to be faithful and bold in the proclamation of His Word, that He would keep me tethered to uh, His text, that, uh, that at the end of the day, all that you would get this morning is just God's Word. And so, Father, we love You, we adore You, we want to love and adore You more. We trust the things that You desire to say to us this morning are good, and so we're grateful for Your Word that You have given to us. Uh, we're grateful for your word that is your son, and so we pray in his name, amen. Okay, well last week versus this week, we get a little bit of a good news, bad news, kind of the reverse of how you typically would want to do it. You give the bad news first and then the good news, but uh, that's the kind of uh, the opposite pattern that we see in our text between last week and this week. We saw the bad news, uh, uh, we're seeing the bad news this week, last week we saw Uh, the good news. And we begin with this little word there in verse 18, the word for. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. I'm not going to have it all up on the screen, but I want to ask you just to look at verse 16 and then look at verse 17 and then verse 18 and then 19, 20, and 21. Notice if you have at least the ESV, most uh, modern English translations are going to begin with that same word, for. So six verses in a row are going to begin with this word, for. In, uh, in Greek, it is the word gar, like a fish or like a noise that a pirate might make or something uh, like that. And it's used throughout uh, Greek literature to provide a reason or a rationale for something. We call it an explanatory gar. And the fact that these six verses in a row are all introduced with this is to show us that this is intended as one dense, compact, intertwined, interspersed uh, argument that uh, Paul is making. Each sentence is building on the next into this densely packed uh, argument. And so as we read it, we should have this sense, if you're reading it as Paul intends, there should be the sense in which we are having trouble catching our breath as we're reading it, because uh, each uh, sentence is flowing into uh, the next, and it's constricting more and more and more around this center thesis that uh, Paul is building. And so, he begins in verse 18 with this little word, for, and it's here to answer the question of why, why verses 16 through 17 that Zach preached last week is such good news. That's what the gospel means, good news. That's what we talked about last week. Why is that such good news? Why is the righteousness of God that we talked about last week gospel? Why is that good news? And he answers it this morning by helping us to see that because 
Apart from the gospel, all men abide under the anger and judgment and, yes, wrath of God. That's how it begins, for the wrath of God. There is no good news apart from the bad news. And unless you understand God's wrath, you will never appreciate God's grace to you. That's the point that he is making here. We talked about it a little last week. From what do you need to be saved? There are all kinds of things that you could answer there. There are all kinds of problems that, uh, that ail mankind, poverty, illiteracy, disease. And so certain people devote themselves to tackling one or two of those, those but government and literacy and medicine aren't the cure for the human condition, though they are good gifts. That the biggest problem that you're under is not those external things. The biggest problem that you're under is condemnation and sin. The biggest problem is that sinful humanity stands before a holy God. Your greatest problem, as Zach said last week, is God. But it's also your only solution. But this idea, so beginning with this wrath of God idea, this concept has always been one that's been very difficult to, for mankind to embrace. It's always been one that has been hard for us to absorb. In fact, in Greek philosophy, most Greek philosophers thought it was abs- absurd uh, for God to inflict wrath. In fact, the second century uh, heretic named Marcion he removed of God after wrath. So if you're reading his translation of the, uh, of the Bible, whenever you got to this, it would just said, for wrath is revealed from heaven against all uh, ungodliness. So similar to if you ever heard stories of Thomas Jefferson, who would basically just kind of take a, uh, a pre-modern exacto knife or something and just cut out parts of the Bible that he didn't agree with. That's what, uh, that, that's what uh, Marcion and other uh, early church heretics would do because they were so disturbed by the idea of God being wrathful that they simply removed it from the Bible. Now, we have far too much reverence uh, from the Bible for the Bible today uh, in order to remove things from it. Instead, I think what most of us do, if there are things in the Bible that we're offended by, things in the Bible we don't understand, things in the Bible we don't like, we don't necessarily cut them out of the Bible. We just simply skip over them. We don't preach on them, we don't think on them, we don't talk about them, we don't discuss them, we don't ponder them, we don't do any of these uh, sorts of things. But the church has always kind of had this struggle with wrestling with the reality of divine wrath, and that wasn't something that was merely limited to the pre-modern ages. That wasn't simply a a pattern in the early church or in the medieval church or uh, something like that. People have always loved the idea of a God of love, but they hate, they despise, they're offended by the idea that God might actually be wrathful against you or me. We like a picture of God that we might hear about on Oprah or by Rob Bell or something like that, a God of no judgment, of absolute tolerance with no consequence whatsoever. As Richard Niebuhr once wrote, deep down, deep down we're tempted to believe that the gospel is a story about a God without wrath bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the help of a Christ without a cross. But even though we might downplay or deny or be offended or ignore the idea of divine wrath, we can't if we're reading the Bible. And the biblical authors aren't ashamed, they're not embarrassed by the idea of God being wrathful just reading a few passages on this, John 3.36, we'll put it up on the screen. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Colossians 3, 5 through 6, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Revelation 19, Jesus himself, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I could have read about 200 more references to divine wrath. That's not counting the references to divine anger and judgment and condemnation. So if you and I want to create a Bible that doesn't have this idea of the wrath of God, our hands are going to get a cramp because it is all over the place. It saturates the biblical storyline. So what is wrath? Here's a simple little definition for you. God's wrath is his active and settled response toward that which is evil. God's wrath is his active and settled response toward that which is evil. Which means for us that what we think about wrath is going to be tied, it's going to be tethered, it's going to reveal in a lot of ways what it is that we think about sin. Is sin some sort of light, trivial thing? Or is it horrific? Is it this cosmic rebellion? Those who deny or downplay wrath deny or downplay the horror of sin. You see, for us to say that the punishment doesn't fit the crime means that we haven't understood the crime. Think of the cultural outrage. Think of the cultural outrage uh, that we experience here in America if someone who is uh, obviously guilty goes free by some sort of uh, injustice, some sort of uh, miscalculation in the system, whatever it might be, a murderer or a rapist or whatever it might be. Think about that. Now multiply that by a trillion and you get some idea of the heinousness and horror of sin against a holy an infinitely good God. So if we still shrink back from the concept of wrath, then we need to recognize that divine wrath, or divine love, sorry, demands divine wrath. Think about how profoundly unloving it is for us to not be wrathful in the face of opposition to your love. Biblically, God's love and His wrath are complementary. They're not contradictory. God is wrathful as His love is being rejected, as His love is being oppressed, as His love is being sinned against. And so it begins and says that the wrath of God is being revealed. Next week we'll see how, as we consider verses 24 through 32, we'll see all the different ways in which God's wrath is being revealed. But what we see in our text this morning is the what and, uh, and the whom So against what and against whom is God wrathful? And Paul answers and says, against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And that refers to all mankind. All ungodliness and all unrighteousness of all mankind. There is a sense in which this really refers to all mankind. This is intended to kind of uh, be an allusion to the universal exchange that all of us have taken place in. But there's a, a more specific sense in which this is really geared towards Gentiles. 
Chapter 2, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, is uh, more geared towards the specific sins that Israel is going to struggle with. So this is, uh, is more geared toward uh, the, uh, the Gentiles uh, as the Israelites have, have uh, sinned not only against what's revealed in nature, as this passage is talking about, but also what's revealed in the law and the history of uh, redemption. So that's the what, that's the, the whom. God's wrath is being revealed. It's being revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of all mankind. We'll see the how next week, but let's talk about the why. Why is it that God's wrath is being revealed? It says here, because of the suppression of truth. Now, don't just read that as truth in general. It's the suppression of the truth. It isn't just saying that God's wrath is poured out upon us because we're liars, but that we have lied against and about the most fundamental truth in all of existence, the one which underpins and undergirds all of reality. That's what we have rejected. What truth is that? The righteousness and beauty and glory of God. The truth that the one true God should be worshipped, should be revered, should be esteemed as God, and thus worthy of our worship. That's what's going to be progressively unraveled in our passage this morning. That's the truth that man suppresses or restrains or pushes down. So let's keep going a little bit deeper into the rabbit hole here. Look at verses 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Have you ever been somewhere in nature and just experienced this profound sense of glory and awe? Maybe the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls, Mount Everest, your Jerry Hallbrook, Lake Athens. This place where you just sense God is surely present in this place. That's a little whisper of what Paul is talking about here and what what, uh, the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. This is what we call natural revelation that in nature, in creation, there is something of God that is revealed. Not savingly, Not exhaustively, not fully. We might think, if you will, think of creation as being this shadow of God's substance. It's a shadow. And on the basis of that shadow, you know something is casting that shadow. You don't know everything about uh, the, the substance that is casting the shadow. But there are certain things that you know. There is something there. Shadows don't simply appear. They appear because something is casting that shadow. That's what creation is. It's a shadow of the substance of God. It tells us something of God. Again, not exhaustively, not comprehensively, but it tells us that there is a God and that He exists. We should know something or someone is casting the shadow, and yet that's what Paul says that we suppress. We suppress what is plain and obvious. We ignore the shadow and thus ignore the one to whom the shadow points. In other words, that We see something of the nature of God in nature. Not in a pantheistic sense like uh, the force in Star Wars or Pocahontas or Avatar or uh, something like that. That's not saying that the trees are a part of God or squirrels are a part of God or something like that. 
Creation is not a part of God. Instead, what we're actually seeing is the exact opposite of that. When we look at creation, there is this fundamental division that we should be able to perceive that is between creator and creation. We know that there is a fundamental divide that exists between creation and creature, and yet that is the thing that we push down. That is the thing that we restrain, and rather than worshiping the creator, we worship creation. We see a shadow, and rather than turning to look upon and behold the substance casting that shadow, instead we kneel down and begin to worship the shadow itself. And notice what Paul does here. He uses this oxymoron to express this. He says that things which cannot be seen are seen. God's invisible attributes are seen in some sense. His invisible attributes are observed through visible means. His eternal power and His divine nature or His godness, if you will. Whatever it means to be God, that is something of what is revealed in nature. There's this baseline knowledge of God as Creator that we all possess, and yet even that baseline, the bare minimum, the lowest common denominator, Paul is saying that we press down, we reject, we suppress. And it's not just something that some of us do. It's not just uh, the philosophy professor that you had in college. It's not just the skeptic who blogs online. It's just not just your neighbor with the Darwin fish eating the Jesus fish that's on the back of his Prius or something like that. It's not just some people who do this uh, suppressing of the truth. This is a universal reality. Again, it's against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of all mankind. This is something that all of us do. Everyone sees or hears or senses something in creation to which they should respond with gratitude. Which means that it's true, something that we say at Parkway all the time, which is everyone is a theologian. Everyone has some sort of conception of God. Even the atheist is saying something about God. They're saying God does not exist. That is a statement about God that they believe to be true. The question is never, will you be a theologian? The question is always, will you be a good theologian? Will you think of God in terms and in concepts that correspond to the way that God thinks of Himself and the way that God has revealed Himself in His Word? Everyone, though, is a theologian. Everyone has this kernel of knowledge, according to Paul, but they suppress it, they repress it. So there's a sense in which there's no such thing as a true atheist. All people have a shadow, have seen the shadow and heard the whispers, although most not only suppress the truth, but they also suppress the memory of suppressing the truth. So I don't think it's a great apologetic to just go to your neighbor who calls themselves an atheist and kind of use the liar, liar, pants on fire apologetic. But Paul sort of reasons that because all people know in some sense or should know in some sense, they are without uh, excuse. When I was a kid during the summers, uh, I wanted nothing more than to do nothing. Kind of, I just wanted, that, that was my season to be autonomous, right? I, and so my parents would go to work, and I would just uh, get to play. I would get to go into the woods and, uh, and take my BB gun and climb trees and shoot baskets and uh, just kind of do whatever it is that I wanted to do. The problem with that is that my dad loved leaving me little notes. And, uh, and those notes weren't, hey, sport, I love you. Those notes were, uh, hey, sport, do these seven things. And so he would leave me these notes with all of these chores. And most of the time, it was mow the lawn and pick weeds because I grew up uh, in the Houston area. And so whenever you pick one weed, uh, it would bring back a bunch of friends. 
and, uh, and then uh, within 30 seconds, you'd have to pick weeds again. So there were always notes, just this sort of never-ending uh, cycle of, uh, of notes uh, for me. Uh, and so my goal oftentimes would be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to avoid the note, right? Because I figured if I didn't read the note, I wasn't actually morally responsible for carrying out whatever it is uh, that the notes would say. And so I wouldn't go into the kitchen, uh, and then I would get hungry, and eventually I'd have to go in there. But then I wouldn't look at the counters or whatever. I don't think I ever successfully avoided the note. But even if I would have, what was I doing in that moment? I know my dad would not have accepted that as a valid excuse for not having done whatever it is that he uh, had asked uh, me uh, to do. I just simply began to try to avoid the truth, and yet I'm left without an excuse. That's what Paul is saying about mankind, that because we have suppressed the truth, we've pushed down the truth, we've tried to avoid the truth, knowing that the truth exists. We know that that note is there somewhere because there's always a note there. We've pressed it down. We've tried to avoid it. And so we are, according to uh, Scripture, without excuse. And this whole section reminds me, there's this constant refrain throughout the Old Testament that says that people have eyes but do not see and ears but do not hear. They've so loved to pretend that they're blind and deaf that they actually become blind and deaf. I remember when uh, this miniseries North and South came out. I don't know if any of y'all remember that, but it had Patrick Swayze as a, a, guy, a character named Ori Main, and, uh, and it, uh, it's about the Civil War, and, uh, and he gets shot at some point, and so he walks with a limp. And so for like two weeks, I literally just walked with a limp everywhere I went. And at the end of that two weeks, the problem was uh, I had uh, actually begun to like uh, overcompensate and so for the next couple of weeks after that, I walked with a limp unintentionally because I could not walk with a limp, right? Because my ankle had begun to hurt, and, uh, and so I experienced a little bit of what uh, this is talking about here. In Psalm 115, it says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Listen to this next line and think about this for a second. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Like the idols that man worships, man becomes deaf and blind and senseless. That senselessness and idolatry is what Paul will talk about in the next section. Let's look at verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here we see this worst trade in all of history. It's not that deal that the Frenchmen enter into. It's not uh, the trade of Babe Ruth. It's not any of these sorts of things. It's not something involving Bernie Madoff or Enron or anything like that. It's this, that mankind trades the eternal glory of their Creator for the fading folly of creation. That's the worst exchange, the worst trade, the worst deal that has ever occurred. And this is the root of all subsequent sin, a rejection of God and His beauty and His glory and His majesty and His splendor. We were created, you and I were created to glory in God 
to delight in God, to find joy and pleasure in life in God, to treasure Him and all of His infinite perfections. You had one job, and you blew it. We do not naturally honor or glorify God or give thanks, and the result is futile thinking and foolish hearts. Theologically, we call this condition depravity. It's something we talked about quite a bit in the book of Ephesians because we ran across passages uh, like this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Or in chapter 4 it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So Paul writes here in Romans, he writes that they became futile in their thinking, this same idea that exists there in Ephesians and in dozens of other places that we could look at uh, throughout the Scriptures. The word that he uses here in this Romans passage for futile is interesting. First century Jews would have actually recognized uh, this word uh, from the Old Testament, from the uh, Greek translation of uh, Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 2, verse 5, it says this, and notice the parallel, notice the similarity of, uh, of language between what Jeremiah says and what Paul is saying. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Similar to what we read uh, earlier about you going after idols and you become like the idols that you go after. You begin to uh, mimic or remain with the limp and after a while, you begin to limp for real because there is an injury. That's what's happening here. And though it's translated uh, in this passage as worthless, uh, that you went after worthlessness and you became worthless, it's actually the same Greek word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same Greek word uh, used here in Jeremiah 2 as Paul is going to use in uh, Romans 1. And if you were to continue to read Jeremiah 2, just a few verses later, you would run into another picture of this horrid and sinful exchange. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture to help me understand the nature of what sin really entails. In verses 11 through 13, Jeremiah writes this, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed, you could read that also as exchanged, their glory for that which does not profit. They've traded. My people have traded their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Think of the vivid imagery of sin that Jeremiah is giving there. Can you picture it? Imagine, if you will, that you live in this cabin. You live in this cabin out in the woods, and so you wake up in the morning. You wake up in the morning, you put on your house shoes, you put on your robe, 
You go and you make a fire in the fireplace, and then you step out on uh, your porch. You smell the cool, crisp uh, air there in the mountains. You smell little hints of the fire as it's uh, making its way up the chimney. You smell a little bit of that smoke. You smile, you yawn, you stretch. You grab a bucket because you want to make some coffee or whatever it might be. You grab a bucket there off the porch. Uh, and you walk this little path down to this flowing, crystal, clear, cool stream that's basically just glacier runoff from higher up the mountains. And yet, instead of jumping into it, instead of kneeling down, instead of dipping your bucket into it, you take a hard left there at this crystal stream, and you find this well-worn path, the path that you walk every single day, every single morning, And you follow that path until you get to this feeding trough. And in the feeding trough is just this stagnant, putrid, dirty water. There's a rat floating in it. There's animal droppings all in it. You can't even see the bottom. And you dip your bucket down into it, and you raise the bucket up, and you drink. That's the image of sin that Jeremiah is giving for us. That we have forsaken this clear water. We have forsaken joy. Sin is not the pursuit of joy. Sin is the foolish forsaking of joy for something that doesn't bring pleasure. That's the imagery that he is helping us to see. And it's not just a Gentile problem. We see the same language in the Psalms from Israel's history. It's a universal problem which is played out in the garden, in the wilderness, in every person's heart thereafter. We see a little bit of it in Psalm 106. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. That's the shared imagery of the Old Testament that Paul is invoking here. And so we see man's innate foolishness, even in the trade. Only a fool, if we presented it in those terms, you hand somebody filthy water and you hand somebody this perfectly clear water, only a fool would choose the filthy water. That's the point that Paul is intending to make. It shows our foolishness that we would be willing to make that kind of deal, that we would trade the Creator for creation. Or to be more precise in the language of the text, we trade the Creator for images resembling creation. Not even the real thing, but copies of copies. We trade this treasure chest full of gold, Krugerrands and doubloons and whatever it is, this treasure chest full of refined gold. And what do you get out of it? You get a photo of a drawing of a portrait of iron pyrite, fool's gold. And notice in the text there's also this inversion of created order. Mankind was created in order to glorify God and rule over creation, and instead we reject God and worship creation. And not just any creation, but mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Not creepy things like clowns, but creeping things. It's a language uh, there. In Greek, it's actually uh, the word herpeton. Anybody know what a herpetologist is? Herpetologist is someone who studies reptiles or amphibians. Someone with a a long, deep-seated, irrational fear of lizards. I say, yuck. That's like the worst job ever to be a herpetologist. That's the point here, that you have traded creation for a portrait of the lowest 
of the low. There is this, uh, by the way, there, there is this similarity in this order here that you see of mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That same order of birds and animals and creeping things, those exact same words and that same order actually takes place in Genesis with creation. So I think you're intended to see there is this inversion of God's created order showing us that there is a parallel between what happens in the garden in Genesis and what happens in my heart and in your heart and in every human heart. That this boom has taken place in the book of Genesis and there is an echo, there's a ripple that occurs in every human heart thereafter. And so there is this inversion of God's created order. God designed man to worship God and rule over creation, but man is worshiping creation and attempting to rule over God. You're not even worshiping angels, which might make sense. You see an angel, it's this glorious thing in Scripture. People tend to fall down and worship it. That's not even what they're doing. They're not even worshiping other men necessarily. They're worshiping the lowest of the lows. They're worshiping reptiles, creeping things, the lowest of the lows. This is more than just foolishness. This is madness, and that's what we're intended to see in this, that there's this, there is this innate, natural, intrinsic posture of the human heart that apart from grace, this is you and this is me. This is every one of us. What happens in each and every human heart is just an echo of the same exchange that took place in the garden. And so you see little shadows of this sin, little hints, little whispers of this sin, little echoes of this sin, little ripples of this sin in any sin that you can imagine. In adultery, there's the trait of one spouse for another lover. In pornography, there's the trait of intimacy for images. In greed and pride and envy and anger and on and on we could go. Every single other sin is somehow just a reflection, a picture of this tragic exchange that you and I have made. So the ripples of this tragic exchange carry on and flow on over time in all of our hearts. Rather than imaging God as we're created to do, we worship images of His creation. We worship idols. And idols are this picture of the upending of the creation order, the utter insanity and futility and foolishness of our rejection of God. It's a symptom of this deeper disease of a darkened heart that fails to worship God. So our root issue is not just this idol, which is just an external thing. Our root issue is an internal thing that is a heart that has misdirected worship. Our heart that doesn't want, doesn't long to glorify God, to express gratitude uh, toward God. And so in some contexts, this heart condition is going to manifest itself as a physical idol. Certain people are going to build statues or obelisks or whatever it might be, but for most of us, our idolatry is going to be much more subtle. But it always begins with a failing to worship God and redirecting our pleasure and hope and purpose and identity elsewhere. You see, there's no escaping worship for us. Just like the question is never, will you be a theologian or will you not? The question is always, will you be a good theologian? So the question is not, will you be a worshiper or not? Instead, it's what will you worship? Everyone worships something. There is no escaping from that. There's nothing that you can do to turn off that innate desire that God has created. The question is just what or whom will you 
worship. So what will you praise? What will you delight in? What will you treasure? How might you even know? So I want to give you a little test that you can go through to help you to know what is it? What is it that I worship? What is it that I treasure? What is it that I find my worth and value? And so I want you to ask this question. Life only has meaning, or I only have worth if fill in the blank. Life only has meaning, or I only have worth if fill in the blank. And whatever you fill in the blank with, that's the answer. For you, that is your idol. For you, that is your source or object of your worship. That is what you delight in. That is what you treasure. So life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have money. Will you worship money? Only has meaning or worth if I'm loved and respected. Will you worship approval? I'm comfortable or things are convenient. You worship comfort or convenience. I have a fulfilling job and am productive and get things done. You worship work. I'm in control. I have a particular look or body image. Others think highly of me. I have a formal place to serve or I'm being served. And on and on and on and on we could go because the heart is content to simply trade one idol for another. It doesn't matter to your heart which idol you're worshiping as long as you're not worshiping the true creator God. It's kind of like that whack-a-mole game at Chuck E. Cheese One is just going to pop up after the other. You hit it down, another pops up. You hit it down, another pops up. And the only thing that works is whenever you actually stop playing the game, that's whenever everything gets pushed down. So likewise, the only thing that works is when you finally decide, I'm not going to simply trade one idol for another, but I'm going to actually worship the true Creator, God. So let's recap as we begin to close down. You are by nature an unrighteous and ungodly idolater and thus fully deserving of the wrath of God. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. <laughs> there's, there's good news after it. We talked about it last week. God's righteousness is not just manifest in His, ma- in His wrath. That's what we're talking about today, the wrath of God. But God's righteousness is not just manifest in His wrath, but also in His grace as we talked about last week. His saving activity toward His people. And so for all who would love and trust Jesus, there's hope. God's righteousness consists not merely of His commands to us, but His provision of righteousness to unrighteous people. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But He gives it by grace through faith. This is the foundation of our faith. All the things that we talked about last week as we talked about the gospel, the righteousness of God the power of God, the gospel of God, the good news that God is putting to rights all that is wrong and will one day consummate His rule and reign through His Son and by His Spirit, that He will remove every obstacle and impediment to His glory, which means He will also remove every obstacle and impediment to your joy because those things are meant to be complementary and not contradictory. That's our hope. And not only that, but there is also this other principle that's in play here that I want to end with. Earlier we saw that there is this tragic uh, imitation that takes place as a result of this tragic exchange. We worship idols and we begin to become like them. Idols are deaf and blind, and so we become deaf and blind. In other words, mankind was created with this kind of chameleonic ability to mimic their surroundings, which is why people have certain accents. You grow up in a particular context and you have an accent, or why if you have a group of shared friends, you begin to take on certain characteristics. You share certain inside jokes that you laugh at. You might have words and phrases that you say uh, that are kind of imbued with a different meaning. 
than others. You ever see pictures of people who look like their pets or married couples who begin to look at e- like each other after a period of time? You become like those that you hang around, which is why I never hang around with staff outside of work hours. I don't want to drive a Prius or work on Rubik's Cubes, and I don't want my wife to be annoyed by my magic tricks or illusions, as Zach always calls them. We begin to look like what we look at. That's this biblical principle. We, be- we, become to, uh, we start to look like what we look at. New Testament theologian G.K. Bill says this, we become like what we worship and serve. That's true for good as well as bad. We saw the bad. You begin to look at, you begin to behold idols, you become like them. They're deaf and blind, you become deaf and blind. But that's also true for good. You resemble what you revere, rather for ruin, as we've talked about, or for restoration. The more that we worship idols, the more that we become like them. But the inverse is true as well. As we worship Jesus, the Bible would say we become like Him. That's the imagery of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll throw up on the board. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, by beholding Jesus, we be begin to become more like Him. That's the hope for our next 18 months in Romans. That's the hope for our next 18 years as a body and beyond, that everything that we do might be an opportunity for us to behold Jesus and to be transformed into His image progressively. So everything that we do here is intended to somehow help us to see Jesus more clearly, that by beholding we might become That's why we preach, that's why we teach, that's why we gather, that's why we pray, that's why we sing, that's why everything that we do is intended toward that end. But there are two particular symbols uh, that Christ has given for the church that function in a sense like binoculars. They're taking all the things that we do which are focused on Jesus, and there are two particular symbols that He's given which are kind of lenses of binoculars that bring the image of Christ closer to us. One of those is in communion, the other one is in baptism, and both of those we get to celebrate this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll spend some time together beholding Jesus as we take uh, communion together. Father, I thank You again for Your Word. I thank You for uh, Your grace to us that if we love and trust Jesus, we don't abide under Your wrath. We don't abide under condemnation. We don't abide under judgment that instead we receive grace and mercy and love and acceptance and forgiveness and all of those things. And so I thank You for Your Word this morning, even though it's a Word that uh, is offensive to us as it talks about our unrighteousness and our ungodliness, Lord. It also helps us to see more Your faithfulness and the depths of Your mercy and grace to us. So I pray that You would help us to be a people who are uh, overwhelmingly grateful for what You have done for us, not only in creation, but in redemption as well, as You have taken people who are ungodly and unrighteous, and You have given us the righteousness of Your Son. So help us toward that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.